second week of the new year, second week of this series, Practicing the Way. If you weren't here last week, we introduced this series, and it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple, uh, but yet simultaneously incredibly difficult. We're going to look in these in this series at the commands of Jesus, like the laws of Christ himself, and then actually try to do them. So it's pretty simple and straightforward in that it's not like theologically complicated. It's like Jesus says this, and then you go do it. And it's kind of supposed to be as simple as that. But like anything in life, you'll realize that, man, sometimes doing what Jesus clearly states can be incredibly difficult. We're calling it practicing the way because the first Christians weren't called Christians, They were originally called people of the way, and they were called people of the way because they believed Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and they wanted to walk in his ways. Now, this series is similar to a concept that was really popular a decade or so ago. It's still popular, but it's not as popular because I've asked every campus and every service this, and I only got one taker, uh, if anyone still has a WWJD bracelet on. We we have one person uh, so far. Anybody here? You have it on your car, that counts. One dude in Hollister had it tattooed, so that counted three. So it counted as five people. <laughs> but WWJD was, it's similar in that uh, a hypothetical situation would arise, and you're wanting to know, like, what would Christ have me do in this situation? So you would ask in the hypothetical situation, like, what would Jesus do? So say, for instance, like you're at the mall, and you're walking behind someone, and, uh, you know, you see them drop some money out of their pocket. You go, I'm going to go give it back to him, and it's five, ten bucks. And you pick it up, and it's like, it's like a hundo, man. It's a $100 bill. And you go, oh, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And it's like, oh, man, Jesus, he tithed 10% of this, and then the whole hundred's baptized. Then it's all okay. You can just take the rest for yourself. Like, what would Jesus do? No, that's not what Jesus would do. Or it's like uh, some of you, when you go to um, the grocery store, you start off um, going, oh, you know, grapes aren't in season. So I don't know if these are going to be good. Let me, let me take, like, take a bite to sample and Nothing wrong with that. But it's like, oh, man, no, these grapes are good. They're real good, man. You can start call, call the whole family over. Now the whole family's sampling on these grapes. And whatever line there is, clearly you've crossed it. What would Jesus do? I don't know. You'd probably stop at the third or fourth or tenth grape. And then you go down to, like, you know, where the bins are at. It's like, oh, there's almonds and cashews. Oh, semi-sweet covered almonds. Well, what, what do they mean by semi-sweet? I mean, these may be too sugary for the kids. I need to sample a couple more of these. It's like, what would Jesus do? He probably wouldn't have a handful of the chocolate-covered almonds. Or some of you are real dirty. You go to Costco, and you decide you're going to do, like, the, the four-lap loop on sample Sunday because you're hungry. You know, they're meant for you to sample. You have no intention of actually buying anything. But you just, you go around, you're still hungry, go around again. You do four laps, man, you put your hair in a ponytail, put on a jacket, have an accent the other time. You're stealing. You got a whole meal for free. What's wrong with you? Those people work off commission. You've never bought a thing from them. Man, they don't work off commission, but that'd be messed up. Then it'd be really, so it's like hypotheticals. It's like what would Jesus do in a small thing and a large thing? This is similar, but it's different because we're just saying, what does Christ command? What is his law? And then we are going to try and do it. You don't need to think of the hypothetical. 
it's difficult because most of us, we don't like the word law or command. We're Americans, so, so we see kind of like laws and rules as, as like holding back our freedom or restricting us from doing what we actually want to do. There's a word, however, that Jewish people for hundreds of years and to this day used to describe the sum total of God's laws. So you add up all of God's law and put them before you, you would call that halakha. And halakha literally means walk, walking the path or the journey. Because God's laws are not given to you to restrict your freedom. God's laws are which you walk in. And you walk along your loving father who gives, gives you these laws for your benefit. Like a loving father who tells his child to look both ways before crossing the street. They're not meant to hamper freedom. They're meant to give you a life that's full of flourishing. They're for your good. So every week, we're going to look at something Christ said to do. And he said it explicitly and directly. There's like no confusion about it. And we're going to try to actually go about doing it. Not this slide, but the next slide will have the command that we're going to try to put into practice today. Uh, But this is Jesus' setup for his command. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, quick opening component. Jesus, uh, in this section, is in the Sermon on the Mount, and He's going to say this several times. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And what he's doing is he's quoting directly from the Old Testament, and then he's intensifying that law. And this is important because many Christians live under the the misunderstanding that the Old Testament was really hard and really difficult, and no one could live under the Old Testament, but the New Testament is full of grace, and it's far easier. The Old Testament law judged external action and deed. You've heard it said, do not murder, okay? So don't murder and you pass that command. What does Jesus in his royal law say? Oh, good, good, you don't murder anybody. I tell you if you have anger in your heart. New Testament ethic goes beyond the external deed and action and goes to the very heart of things. So most of us, most probably haven't murdered anybody. Well done, everybody. Jesus would say, I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you're in danger of the hell of fire. See, this is much, much more higher ethic. What Jesus is talking about here is he's saying that the same seed of the, in the human heart that leads to murder for some people may not lead you to murder, but it's the same seed, and make no mistake about it. There's a trajectory to anger, Anger leads to murder. The early church saw this as well. There's a first century document called the Didache. And in that, they said, do not become angry for anger leads to murder. You see, there's a, there's a trajectory. The seed can blossom and grow into something where it was just anger one day, and then all of a sudden it's murder the next. That Didache line sounds sort of like something Yoda would say, though. You know, Yoda from Star Wars doesn't kind of sound Yoda-ish. Like, if you just break up that grammar just a little bit, that's pure Yoda. Like, become angry and murder, you will. Mm. It's like, it's like that's, that's there. That's Yoda talk. And just like Star Wars, when Yoda talks like that, you, your reaction is like, dude, there's no way. I'm going to get angry, angry at somebody and it's going to turn to murder. That's not me. I'm not that bad of a person. 
And Jesus would say, really? You're you're not that bad of a person. See, most of us in this room, all of us most likely, will never commit murder. But Jesus says it's still in you to do that. And we may pride ourselves that we're so morally virtuous and righteous because we haven't killed anybody. But make no mistake about it, if you had different parents and maybe born in a different place and time and weren't privileged to live in a country where there's laws and rules and consequences to action and you were put in an extreme situation, man, make no mistake about it, tons of us in this room could kill somebody. And all you have to do is be a student of history and look at how genocides occur and see how normal men and women participate in the murdering of their neighbors. And if you don't end up murdering someone, most of the people at least turn the other way and don't look when the murders are happening. Man, it's, it's in us all. That venom runs through our veins. So Jesus says, you got to squash that anger before it develops into something more. And even now, if it doesn't turn into murder, I could tell you as a pastor, it can turn into just bitterness and resentment that'll eat you for the rest of your life. We see that over and over again. So what is Jesus' response to this? How do you deal with anger? Here's the direct command. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against, against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So, a couple things that the language is a little difficult. It's not like saying if you have something, like you realize you've wronged your brother, like your literal brother. This is Bible language. So brother means brother or sister, and brother or sister doesn't mean just literal family members. It means people in the community. You've wronged a brother or sister in the community. So if you've done something wrong and you know it, you remember that someone has this offense up against you, before you even go to the altar to make your sacrifice, go be reconciled. Now, what's this language about altar and stuff? This is temple language. So the temple's still standing when Jesus is talking. So he's talking about someone going into the temple with the sacrifice. This is the place where forgiveness happens. This is the place where worship happens. And Jesus says, before you do any of that, go be reconciled. The like modern equivalent maybe would be like, before you even go to church, before you go worship, go make sure you're reconciled with the person you've caused an offense against. Now, there's a temptation for pastors and teachers to be like, Look, Jesus doesn't really mean before you go to church, go be reconciled with with your brother or sister. And it's like, no, that's what he means. This is how important reconciliation is to God. God says, before you go to church, before you go make your sacrifice, go and at least attempt to be reconciled to the party or the person that's wronged you. Now, to be clear, because sometimes this gets confusing, some people take it the other way, like, if you've been wronged, go, don't, before you go, be reconciled. That's not what's being discussed. It's, you've wronged somebody, you've offended somebody, at least go and try to put that relationship right before you go about doing church business. And we're going to see in a little bit why reconciliation is so important to God. But at least for now, Jesus just says, man, if you can make it right, go there. So for some of you, I'm going to challenge you today that you know you've wronged somebody. You've wronged somebody. You've caused an offense. And maybe it wasn't your fault. Maybe they misinterpreted it. Or maybe it was. 
your job as a Christian is to obey the commands of Christ and to go seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Like this week, it's that important. Like, and maybe it's, it's a distant thing, so you're not going to see them till next Christmas because the Lord knows it's probably a family member um, and they live far away or something like that. So it may take some time, but you can take the first step today. Who are they? Do you have someone in your head? If, if you know you've wronged somebody, Christ commands you today to go seek reconciliation. Now, there's, a, there's another angle to this because this is talking about when you have wronged somebody. But Christ also talks about the inverse of that. So like when you're wronged or people are aggressive or persecuting you. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, this is really interesting right here because Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, which is his normal pattern, right? And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, you shall love your neighbor. That's in the Old Testament, in the great book of Leviticus, the greatest of all the books of the Old Testament. We will be doing a series on Leviticus in the next three years. I've told Kevin and Sam, it's happening so if you, if you don't know why that's weird or awkward, after this, go read the book of Leviticus. I'm going to take a sabbatical during that sermon series, and all the other pastors can preach it. So Leviticus says you shall love your neighbor, but does it say anywhere in the Bible that you are to hate your enemy? Is there any command in the Old Testament to hate your enemy? And the answer is, is No. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus quotes the Old Testament all these times, and then he intensifies the command. But in this case, he's actually saying, you have heard it said, but it's not, that's not in the Bible about hating your enemy. So there's a big question, like, is Jesus trying to paint the, paint the Old Testament in a bad light so his teachings are seen in this more positive light? Is he, is he unaware of what's actually going on in the text? And the answer is, it's, it's complicated, incredibly interesting what Jesus is doing. He knows exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and in that section it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now this, this is the tricky part. There are hundreds of years of debates that go on about exactly how to interpret this text. The rabbis would go back and forth. What does it mean to put this command into practice? Now, you may think it seems straightforward, but you have to put yourself into the shoes of like a three or four-year-old. You know, three or four-year-olds, if you give them an answer, they have a follow-up question. And if you give them an answer, they have a follow-up question. And they can ask why and what about this forever. Okay, so let's do that with this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Who are the sons of my own people? Who are the sons of my own people? Now, there was pretty much agreement on this. They would say, these are uh, fellow Jews who are living in the land. So ethnic Jews who are just like you, who are in your community. You are not supposed to take a vengeance against them. But what about other people? Can I take vengeance against people who aren't sons of my own people? Then the second part, you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
A very important question arises. What's the three-year-old ask here? Who's my neighbor? You know? And a lot of the rabbinical teaching and a lot of people would say from this context, oh, neighbors defined by sons of your own people. So your neighbors are fellow Jews who are in your community. But then you got to ask the question, okay, well, what can I do to non-neighbors? Do I have to be neutral to them? Do I just be nice to them? I don't have to love them like, like myself, but do I have to at least be nice? Can I hate them? Can I take vengeance upon them? How do you define neighbor? And so some of you are like, you know, you're, you're real, you're, you have hospitality in your blood. You love, you just love people. You're an extrovert. And when you think about your neighbors, you think of like the whole quadrant of people in your area. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you refer to your neighbors and they're like, they're like three blocks down. Well, they're still in the neighborhood. And some of you are more on the other side, a little more introvert, a little more grouchy. Maybe a little like me. And it's like, my neighbors are to my left and to my right. I have no further obligations besides that. The people behind me, they're the enemy. There's a fence. If you're behind the fence, we want to put, and we don't want to, you know, the short fences. No, we like 12-foot fences with barbed wire on top. It's like, man... Leave me alone. And those are your names. So everyone defines, I mean, that's a, a micro example of this major question of who is your neighbor? And you would realize later that Jesus would, would also, in other sections of the Bible, redefine neighbor. Because people would ask him, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's like, oh, pretty much anyone who you're in contact with at any point of the day is your neighbor. They, they don't have to be like you. But if you're in Jesus' day, you're wondering, like, Oh, the command in the Old Testament is love my neighbor. Does that include a Roman soldier? Who's my neighbor? Remember, Rome occupies Israel. They oppress Israel. What if there's Roman soldiers in your neighborhood? Are are you called to love them as yourself? And so what you could try to do is wiggle out of, they're not my neighbor, they're not sons of my own people, they're foreign invaders. And so Jesus radically redefines what we mean by neighbor, but more importantly... In this text, he goes even further than redefining what it means to be a neighbor. Again, his words are, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because that was one of the lines of interpretation for that previous text in Leviticus. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So the the command to love your neighbor as yourself is extended by Jesus to include your enemies and even people who persecute you. Now you gotta understand, this is radical. This is the highest ethical teaching that has ever been given. And I'm not just saying that because I'm I'm a Christian. This is the highest ethical teaching ever given. And that's why even non Christians who live try to live by like some crazy high ethical standard point to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount as the standard. So someone like Gandhi in prison is pointing to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount as the highest standard of ethical teaching. Love even your enemies, those who persecute you. If you are going to be a people of God, if you're going to practice the way and follow the way, you are a loving of your enemy type of person. Which again, like the series, straightforward, like Command's simple, right? You don't have to, like, well, what, is, what, do we, what do we mean, love? No, it's just difficult to do. In this section, Jesus gives all kinds of reasons why and practical reasons how this works out, but this is one of the key ones. 
He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That means like, okay, if someone wrongs you here, you can wrong them equally here. So you punch me and you, I get a black eye, I punch you and get a, you get a black eye. I like that. That makes sense. The majority of you in this room, you like that. It resonates with your soul. Especially, certainly, we know this with, with men. There's like a call, an immediate call for like justice right after. I like that, Jesus. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So you see what's, what's going on. It's a, you don't get to, to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone takes something from you, you give them more. If someone punches you, you turn the other cheek. If someone makes you walk one mile, you walk two miles. Now, there's an important clarification here because oftentimes Christianity and Jesus and interpretations of this text will come across weak and passive. Even the word passive sounds weak. Um, and it's like, oh, Christians are just supposed to like, you get punched and then you just kind of cower in fear and be like, oh no, don't, don't hurt me. I'm never gonna strike back. If someone makes you walk a mile, you just say, okay, I could walk, walk another one. That's not what the text is demonstrating. There is this, Active rebellion to the ways of this world being demonstrated here. This is resistance to the patterns of this world. This is a way to rebel with radical acts of compassion. So when someone punches you, you turn the other cheek. Meaning someone punches you, you say, okay, you need, do you need to do that again? I mean, like, how defiant is that? That'd be the most manly thing I've ever seen. Because I could, I mean, I could throw a punch back. But if you're just like, you take it in the face and you're like, oh, you, need, you need to do another one? What up? I can do this all day, bro. <laughs> so the, the walk one mile, walk two miles thing. So it was the law of the time that a Roman soldier could pick up a normal citizen, like it was, the Jews weren't, most of them weren't citizens, but um, could pick up a normal civilian and say, you need to carry my gear, and my luggage, my weapons. And you're going to walk to this destination. So let's say you're a Jewish father. You've been working all day long on the farm. It's a hard day's work and you're tired. And then some big, giant, yoked out Roman soldier comes. And it's just like, I'm going to try to do a Roman soldier voice. Like, hey, peasant, carry my gear. So I don't, I don't know. He's just like, carry, carry this. You're not like, oh, no, what am I? It's, hey, you know what? I know it's rough to be a Roman soldier. Caesar has put you in war after war, and it's been six months since you've seen your family. I know you, you've only asked me to walk you one mile, but can I walk your gear to your final place of destination? I'd love to help you carry this weight. It's not weak. That's not passive. That is an active rebellion through acts of compassion defying the patterns of this world. That's strength. So Jesus says you do this even to your enemies. Christians are to be a people not of retaliation, but reconciliation. And this is, again, incredibly difficult. For some of you, you've wronged somebody. Go seek reconciliation. For some of you, you've been wronged. Love your enemy. 
Bless them. Pray for them. And I know for some of you, that's, that's an easier thing because you're thinking of like your boss who is a jerk and you're just like, oh, he's so annoying, but I'll pray for him. I love him. But some of you have been hurt in incredible, profound ways. The wounds go deep. And you're like, I, I, can't even, I can't even begin to think about how I would begin to love this person. How do you do that? The Bible gives motivation, or we'll call it grounding, to reconciliation, like real concrete motivation why we do this. And the first reason is it's grounded in the character of God, but the second reason is it's grounded in eschatology. And eschatology is a geeky Bible word that refers to the study of the last days or the study of the end, study of the end times. Now, uh, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know that sometimes when people want to study the end times, that's cool and fine, but you know sometimes it gets like real weird and kooky real quick. It's like you're just seeing patterns and signs everywhere and you know, you, you, you're in your backyard and you've dug, you've dug a 50 ground hole in there and you're, you're waiting for the comet to hit and it just gets real weird real, real quick. But the study of eschatology in its proper sense in the, in the biblical frame, framework is this. It is the study of the great hope. Eschatology the end times, the last day, is the day where God rights the world of its wrongs. It's when God fixes the mess that we've created. So it's the study of how God is going to fix everything. And when we put eschatology in relationship to this idea of reconciliation, some motivations begin to emerge. Two of them, in fact. There's more than that, but I only want to talk about two. This is one of the motivations why Christians should be a reconciling people. Now, it's a big text. Um, All this whole section is due is going to talk about how awesome Jesus is, but don't let your mind drift off. One, because this is talking about how awesome Jesus is. Two, the language and that's used is absolutely beautiful. And three, it's going to point to this idea of reconciliation and hopefully a different way for us to look at it. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I've put in bold and underlined two sections of this. In the first part that's talking about how incredible Jesus is, it says, all things were created in heaven and on earth by Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus creates all things for him, by him, through him. At the end of this section, it points to the end goal of God. What is the end goal that God is working through Christ? It says, through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. So in the beginning, Jesus creates everything, everything rebels. At the end, Jesus reconciles all things back unto himself. So, on the last day, there is a great big macro reconciliation. 
We live in the present day and are called to do micro-reconciliations that point to the macro-reconciliation that is to come. God is in the business of reconciling all things back unto himself. And Christians in the present are to be reconciling people precisely because that is the end goal of God. It's like who we are. We're not a retaliating people. We are a reconciling type of people. Because ultimately, that's what our God is going to do. Second motivation. This one is um, rarely talked about. And you can't escape the literature of the early church without seeing this everywhere. Especially in times of persecution for Christians, both in the early church and to today. Paul the Apostle says one of the reasons why we don't retaliate. He said, beloved, never avenge yourselves. You hear that? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why don't you avenge yourself? Because God says, vengeance belongs to me. Now, this is difficult because oftentimes in, in church culture and, and even some of our own kind of cultural longings or, or sometimes our personality, our temperaments can can create a God that doesn't correspond to the God of the Bible. Paul does not say, don't avenge yourself because God is not like that. God would never execute justice. He's, you know, he's not good at confronting his problems and he doesn't want to uh, hurt his enemies. He's just kind of a weak and, and a timid God. No, don't seek vengeance because there is a wrath of God that is coming and God himself says, vengeance belongs to me. Now, why is that so incredibly important? For some of you, it's not that important because like the person you're thinking of again is your boss who you just don't like. And it's easy to, to, to oh, I'll pray for them. I'll pray he gives me a raise too. But for some of you who have felt immense pain from someone that's wronged you, when you go to church and just hear people say something like, oh, we should just forgive people because Jesus forgave us. It's like, yeah, easy for you. You don't know what, you don't know what they did to me know how I was wrong. You don't know the betrayal that I felt. You don't know that. And so what the Bible does is it gives us kind of these two motivations, and it works like this. For people who have wronged you, who are wicked and in evil rebellion against God, you love them and you pray for them because you were once in rebellion But God, rather than giving you justice, gave you mercy and grace. And you want to see that person changed. And when you see someone become a new creature, it's almost as if the old person that wronged you has passed away. And a new person stands before you. The Bible talks about the old person being put to death, being crucified with Jesus, and the new one being born again. So it's like, man... I maybe have never wronged anybody like this person wronged me, but God showed me grace, not judgment, and he made me new and he changed me, and I want this person and all people to know 
the grace and mercy that was given to me when I was undeserving. So that's one angle. Then there's the other angle, though, because if you're someone like me, you immediately go, yeah, well, what if that person never repents? What if they never own up to the wrong they've done? What if they actually do it to other people? Are we just supposed to be like super passive Christians that just say, oh, they can keep doing it no matter what? No, you take a different perspective. You know that if that person does not repent, they will stand before Christ, the judge of heaven and earth, and pay for the wrongs they've done to you and all people. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. And when you know the type of evil that goes on in this world, see, see we're all, for the most part, even though there's still tons of evil in our lives, we're protected. Like, we're not witnessing genocide. There's not, like, like underground prisons where there's tens of thousands of people locked up being tortured. That's the real world. The real world has the trafficking of children for sex. That's reality. You don't avenge because God's wrath is there. And so you pray and you bless because God showed you mercy. You don't retaliate. And you know that if that person doesn't bow the knee to King Jesus, they will face his justice. They will face the judge. And so you have these motivations all around you telling you we're called to be reconciling people, not retaliation people. Now on Christmas Eve, uh, if you were here for the Christmas Eve services, I introduced a pastor by the name of Pastor Wang Yi to you. And Pastor Wang Yi is still locked up. He was arrested in December last month uh, in communist China for preaching the gospel and being part of an unregistered church and for standing up for human rights against the Chinese communist government. Now, he knew that this day would come. He knew that eventually the communist government would come for him and he'd be in prison. So he wrote a letter uh, and he had some people hold on to this letter and he said, if I get taken by the authorities and you don't hear a word from me within 48 hours, get this letter out to the church I pastor and put it online so the world can see. And I encourage you, you just Google Pastor Wang Yi letter and it'll come up. Read the whole letter, it's powerful. But in this, you are gonna see the guy, the guy is a brilliant man. He's a pastor. Before he was a pastor, he was a lawyer, highly educated. You are going to see the theology of someone who is in a system that is persecuting and making he and his people suffer. And you're going to see how he relates to this. And it's going to, it's going to bring to life everything we just talked about. But it's going to bring it to life not in an abstract way. This is real life right now. This guy and over 100 people in his church are in prison. And this is his letter telling us how we should live and how he's living in the type of environment where there's persecution. This is real life today, right now. I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey the human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. Let me just meditate on that for the rest of the time. The Bible calls him to defy the wicked laws of the land, but simultaneously it calls him to joyfully accept the punishment that these wicked laws put upon him. 
As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. That was what the Christmas Eve message was about. It's important to make this world a better place. That's important. It matters. Doing good matters. But your job as a Christian ultimately is not just to do little things that change the world for temporary moments. Your job is to live in such a way that you testify about another world, a different kingdom with a different king and a different set of values. By his suffering, he is testifying of another world. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans for his are always benevolent and good. You get that? If God through my suffering would save some then I joyfully accept the suffering. That's what Christianity looks like. I can tell you how much Christian books, sermons, TV is all just about living the good life and getting a good blessing now. You joyfully accept suffering if it would lead to the salvation of others. Easier said than done though, right? I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to, t- to, t- to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Do you know that today? Do you know that? There is a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. This pastor is more free in a prison cell than those without God. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Now, this is where it comes together. This is everything we've talked about. The the motivations. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Do you feel that? When he reflects on the judgment to come, he doesn't take satisfaction in it, it actually fuels his compassion because the same way they're locking him up, there will be a consequence for their deeds. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. This is so good. And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands For why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Love to your enemies because God gave you mercy and grace. 
and compassion for your enemies because you know if they do not repent, they will face the judge and no deed will go unpunished. Everything in darkness will be brought to light. So as Christians, we have different motivations surrounding us and they're all pushing us to be a people not of retaliation, but of reconciliation. The ushers are gonna pass out communion. And these are the direct commands of God, the law of Christ. If you've wronged somebody and you know it, go seek reconciliation and just do it. Don't try to rationalize. I mean, this is just this is the commands of Christ. Secondly, if you've been wronged, maybe you can for the first time begin to even pray for your enemy, to bless your enemy and love your enemy. And for some of you, that's too difficult, I understand. There's, there's tremendous wounds in this place. So maybe your step isn't like, God, I, I now love my enemy. Maybe today's, God, can you start working on my spirit so that maybe sometime in the future I could stop hating my enemy? But every single person in this room can at least take one small step of reconciliation, whether it's full-blown reconciliation or just asking God to, to just start working on my heart in this one small area. God is ultimately going to reconcile and right the world of its wrongs. God is also going to punish wickedness. So we don't have to worry about that. We should actually be moved with compassion. But there's one final motivation that I hinted at earlier. And I said the reason why we reconcile because it's, it's grounded in the nature and character of God. Because when God came into his enemy's territory... He didn't come to defeat or to destroy or to slay them. He came to love and to bless them. And so when they punched him, he turned the other cheek. They didn't make him walk one mile, but they forced him to carry his cross up to the place of his execution. When they nailed one wrist, he offered the other. And when he was suspended immovable to the Roman cross and they sat and stood mocking him, he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is in the very character and nature of God to offer grace and forgiveness. And we, as his people, do the same. And we can take confidence that that is God's will for our life. And if those people whom we seek reconciliation refuse to repent of the evil they've done, you can rest your head on your pillow tonight because God is going to right all things. Communion is the symbolic meal that God has given us. The bread stands in place of the body broken on our behalf, and the blood stands in place of the blood spilt. And so if um, you're not a Christian, you're just checking things out, don't feel obligated to take this. This is something Christians do. When we do it, we have a tradition here now of standing up. We can stand as we show proper reverence to the body and blood of Christ. Jesus was betrayed, and he said, the bread now is standing in place of my body. This is my body broken for you, for you, and for your enemy. Let's take the bread.
And Jesus says, the blood, the, the cup is now his blood spilt on your behalf. He says, to, as long as you drink it, you're supposed to remember, but also proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. So as we take this, let's remember that the future day is coming where God will reconcile all things. Grace will be given and justice will be served. And we can take hope in the present knowing that that day is on its way. In this time, worship your creator, think what God might be calling you to do and surrender yourself to his will. You often can wonder about the will of God. Whatever the will of God is for your life, I know the will of God, at least for this moment, is to think about where reconciliation is needed.